Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Julie R. and I'm from California and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is November 11th and we are reading from the big book and we are at page 5, the first paragraph starting with liquor ceased to be a luxury. Today's readers are Rick B., Lynn S., Renata G. The reference number for Tuesday, November 10th is 8187. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to that compulsive overeater who still suffers, At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Diane G. to read the 12 steps. Good morning, everyone. This is Diane G. from New Hampshire, a grateful, recovered, not cured, compulsive overeater. 12 steps. Number one. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for his knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to come compulsive overeaters, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you so much, Julie, and I pass. Thank you, Diane G. I will now ask Nadia B. to read the 12 traditions. Good morning. This is Nadia B., grateful recovering, a compulsive overeater from Connecticut. The 12 traditions of overeaters anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon 
or unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscious. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive eater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought to never endorse, finance, or lend OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. These problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OAS as such ought to never be organized, but may, we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought to never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you so much, Anaka. Thank you, Nadia. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book on page 5, paragraph 1. I will ask Rick B. to begin reading. Good morning. This is Rick B. from Massachusetts, Recovered Compulsive Reader. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net me a few hundred dollars, and it would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by a half dozen bottles of beer, 
would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and if there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Well, I'm looking at the first sentence in this paragraph and the last sentence in this paragraph. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became became a necessity, telling us about the progressive nature of the disease. At first it was a luxury, then it became a necessity. Gradually, Bill required the alcohol. And he goes on and on telling about the, the story of the gin and all those things. And he's, this part of the story, he starts to talk less and less about the details of his of his uh, binges, of his sprees. In the last sentence, nevertheless, okay, liquor ceased to be a luxury. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety, which renewed my wife's hope. Even though liquor stopped to be a luxury, he was still suffering from the delusion that he could control the situation. Those uh, few periods of sobriety would give him you know, renewed hope that he could control. But the progressive nature, it was still going downhill. There were little blips going up when he was sober or when he was controlling it, but inevitably he fell down further than he did before. So progression of the disease, and he also talks about the delusion that he had. And if we look, if we go over to uh, page 61, they're asking a question about and how it works. Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Bill was deluded. He, would, he, would, he saw the hope in his wife being a people pleaser. He saw his wife getting happy when, when those uh, good times would return intermittently. But it was all a delusion. Bill was in the throes of the disease, and um, he was not able to get out of it. Delusion and progression. I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Rick B. And who would like to share on this paragraph? This is Bella. Can I share? Okay. Bella Elizabeth, and Elizabeth M. Okay. Anyone else? Diane Elizabeth G. Elizabeth M. Diane G. And who was after Diane G? A.J.M. A.J.M. Pasa O. Okay. We'll start Elizabeth off with that. M. Oh, I got it. I got you, Elizabeth. Okay. So we're going to go Bella, Elizabeth M, Diane G, AJM, and Vasa O. So Bella, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bella G, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Julie, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. I still thought I could control the situation. Yes, this brings me back before the program. Before the program, I had my belief that I can control the situation and I can control everything. And I did so many diets and I lost. 
but I never stay there. I always gained double and triple. And it just brought me to be more isolated, more angry, more upset, more disgusted, disgusted to myself, disgusted to people. And it just went on and on and on. on. I was... I, I was miserable and I lived miserable. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that now that I'm in the program, I just changed my belief. I changed my belief and I am not there anymore. Yes, today I believe that I don't have control and the food has the control. Well, I don't have control and I am powerless. I am powerless over the food. I am powerless over my finance situation, I am powerless. And today I believe I am connected to a higher power that I call him God. And I am, I know that my, my, I, 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 I have to do God's service and not my own service, to do my own it's not my decision, it's God's decision. And today I am connected to the power of God and not to my control power. Thank you for letting me share and I pass. Thank you, Bella G. And Elizabeth M. Thank you. Hi, my name is Elizabeth M., uh, recovering compulsive overeater from New Hampshire. And thank you so much for your service. Um, you know, I have to say, the first few times I read this chapter, Bill's story, I just found it excruciating. I just kept thinking, will there never be any good news? Will this chapter never end? There was so much wreckage, and here we are in the wreckage. And then it was told to me by a big book guide that this chapter actually, the first half is about the wreckage and the progression of the disease, and the second half is about the solution, the program of recovery. So there begins some hope. But you know what I identify in with in this paragraph, which I think is really powerful, is a little bit of what, what Bella just said, which is this last sentence. Nevertheless, I still thought I can control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. And, you know, I've learned that where I'm really powerless is over when I'm going to be powerless. And the periods of sobriety, to me, really signify those times when even in the program, and I've been in program now for seven years, I've been in vision for a little over a year. Um, So for the first six years, I did work that eight-tool program. And I would have plenty of periods of abstinence, but I could never maintain it. And I would sometimes have breaks and have a break and then not eat again for a few days or maybe even a week and think, see, I am not so powerless. And that was the cunning and baffling nature of the disease rather than knowing that at some point I would eat because I'd already started the the allergy, the phenomenon of craving by putting it in my body. So I would get that hope, which he described, it renewed his wife's hope. I'm sure it renewed his hope. What it really does, this powerlessness, is it renews our denial. For me, it just kept renewing my denial. And it's taken me a long time to accept that I have unmanageability both in the disease and when I'm not eating because I'm not recovered. So I am really working hard with my guide on accepting my powerlessness no matter what happens, no matter if I were to, God forbid, have a break and then have a period of abstinence, that would just be the disease once again tricking me. 
So I thank you all. You are saving my life, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Elizabeth M. And Diane G. Press start one to unmute. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Thank you. I was talking to myself. Um, Good morning, everyone. This is Diane G. from New Hampshire. So grateful to be here today. And um, boy, just some of these um, sentences stick out. Uh, Lick it seems to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And then nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Boy, when in the end of my eating, I I remember standing in my pantry just looking for something with sugar. I needed it. My body craved it. My body was screaming for it. I needed the sugar and the flour. I needed it. And I was eating things that I didn't like. You know, how delusional was that? And also, you know, the, the fact that I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I came into program 1980. I remember I weighed 235 pounds when I, at that time, and I was probably 32, 33 years old. And, and then, you know, fast forward to when I came on vision, I'm 270 pounds thinking that as soon as I got this food down, again, I could do it myself, again, that, you know, I, I, I'll, get, I'll get this someday, you know. This is what I did with my, with my life. Um, today's Veterans Day. My husband was a Vietnam vet, and um, we were married five days. We'll be married 48 years next week. Married five days, my husband goes off to Vietnam. And the whole time he's gone, I'm writing to him, telling him about all these all this weight I'm losing while he's gone. He's coming home to this really thin woman. I wasn't that heavy then, but anyway, he came home to a fatter person, you know, and I remember him saying, what happened? You know, I thought you were losing weight, you know, and um, that was my life. That was my life. And, you know, I thought, oh, well, now I've got, a, you know, six months of abstinence. I can go out there. You know, I can, I can deal with this situation myself. I don't have to, you know, keep calling the meetings and do the steps, and I've got it down pat. Well, you know what? This is a progressive disease. You know, every time I went in, I thought I could control the situation. How crazy is that? There's no way I could do that. I needed the big book. I needed the steps. I needed all of you. Thank you so much, and I pass. Thank you, Diane G. And AJM, you're next. Good morning. This is AJM, a compulsive overeater from North Carolina. The um, words bathtub gin jumped out at me. I know what it means, of course, homemade, uh, homemade alcohol. But I thought, why did we call it that? Was it literally made in a bathtub? And in some cases it was. But what occurred to me was that in this country, the government tried to um, ban uh, alcohol for 13 years, from 1920 to 1933, and that was brought about by temperance groups who believed that if we could just get the substance away from alcoholics, if we could just control it, so the government was going to control it because the individual could not. But what the government learned was that it couldn't control it any more than the individual could. Um, 
people would bring it in from Canada or the or from Europe or make it at home. And a lot of drinks today are uh, the result of prohibition. Drinks like, say, a Manhattan that has flavorings in it because they uh, the drink was invented to try to disguise the taste of the homemade alcohol. So it occurred to me what would happen if the government tried to ban the products that I am allergic to, um, sugar being number one, and I couldn't go into a grocery store and buy my sugary fix. What would I do? What would I? How would I get it? I don't know, but I would find a way. Of that, I am convinced. If I don't have the spiritual connection that I need that allows me to uh, live without my fix, not only live but to thrive without the um, sugar fix that I um, that I have depended on for such a long time. I'd find a way. There would be a way. And analyzing this paragraph in that manner helps me see that I am not any different from Bill. I mean, when I read two bottles a day, often three, and that he would have to drink gin and half a dozen bottles of beer before he could manage to put food on his stomach, makes me think, well, I've never been that bad, but I have. It's just a, a difference. It's a different substance for me. And I'm delighted to hear from someone else who just shared that that we will get into the um, solution in this chapter because this is pretty grim. It's It's hard reading. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you for your service. Thank you, AJ, for your share. And Vasa O., you're next. Yes. Good morning, everyone. I'm Vasa, grateful, recovered, compulsive Vida, calling from Foxborough, Massachusetts. I haven't been able to get on the meeting for the last few weeks since the convention because of certain things happening in my life, but I'm so grateful to be here today with all of you. And the convention was just awesome. It was just wonderful to meet all the people and connect the faces but this is going just for another few more days, and I'll be getting on my meetings, which I really, really miss them. But I like this paragraph very much, and I can relate to Bill, Bill's story. Uh, liquor ceased to be luxury. It became necessary. And again, from my progression of the disease, which I tried to control for many, many, many years, there's no more. There was no more. Everything I tried, there was nothing more to try. And just before I found recovery, I remember, you know, a few months or could have, been, could have been six months, I remember just saying, I'm powerless, I can't do this by myself, and I'm just giving completely into my addiction because everything I tried, it just did not work anymore. Okay. And, uh, I, and, you know, and I hear, I, I hear I hadn't lost everything like Bill did or other alcoholics are done, but since I came in recovery, I've, I've heard so many stories. It's a progressive disease, and it's by the grace, it's by, thank you, my higher power for bringing me to OA and the 12 steps, because I was on the losing of my health, and I was on the losing um, a relationship. I almost was divorced. I almost divorced my husband. 
and uh, it's it's a miracle, you know, how this program works. And I never, never want to go back again, you know. This is where the solution for me is. And what a good news to hear. I was really excited to hear the solution. You know, the allergy, I didn't even know I had the allergy, the, and the physical allergy. I didn't understand about the mental obsession, of course. I always went back to the food, you know. So I'm just so, so grateful, and I'm I'm grateful to be here with all of you and to hear everybody share, and I pass. Thank you, Lasso. I would like to remind everybody to make sure they're muted. I hear a little baby in the background. Would anybody else like to share on this paragraph? Sally. Carol G. Austin R. Melissa. Okay. Uh, Did you say Austin R? Leah. Okay. I missed somebody between, I believe it was Austin R and Leah M. Carol I don't know if you got Melissa C. No, that was it, Melissa. Thank you. And Sarah W. Okay, we'll start off with Rakesset Z, then Sally, Carol G, Austin R, Melissa C, and Leah M. Go ahead, Rakesset. Star one to unmute, Rakesset. Still not hearing you. Sorry about that, Julie. I got muted. Okay, okay. so um, I'm Rakesha Z, recovered compulsive overeater from California. And this is a, the bathtub gin. I can so, so relate to that. Um, you know, I, the scenario would play out like this. I'd be sitting on my desk at work, abstinent, white-knuckling it, just barely, barely being able to survive. And finally, I decide I'm going to go eat. I can't stand it anymore. I just can't stand the way I feel. So... I'm going to go to the grocery store, which is, you know, only two miles away. I'm going to drive over, get get what I need, and then come back to work. But before I go, I know I can't even make it there, two miles in the car, without having something inside of me, without eating. I mean, I am just going to die. I'm going to collapse on the floor if I don't get something in me in the next 30 seconds. So I gather all the change I have, and I go down uh, to the vending machine, which is on the way to the car, and I stand there, I count all my change, I see which items, I don't care what they taste like, Where, which items will I get the most for my money? Because I only have a certain amount of money, only a certain amount of coins. And I will buy whatever has the largest volume for the money. Because I just need to fill up. I just need to get filled up. And also when I go to the grocery store, then I don't buy anything exotic or interesting. I just buy crap. Just by crap. And the other thing I want to talk about was um, renewed hope, that his wife had renewed hope. And that's what, where my daughters were. Um, at first, when I would break my abstinence, my daughters were very sympathetic, and how can we help you, and oh, it must be really hard. But as time progressed, and my relapses got sh- uh, shorter in between relapses, and the relapses got worse and longer, they were not sympathetic anymore. You know, they were belligerent. And it really affected them. I would hear them whispering among themselves, mom broke her abstinence, mom broke her abstinence. Oh, no. You know, that's what I would hear them whisper. It was, they they lost all 
hope in me. They lost credit. I had no credibility because I couldn't stay abstinent. And what really struck me is when my daughter told me, you know, Mom, I tried this really good food, and next time you break your abstinence, I want you to try it. So, you know, for her, it was a done deal. Of course I'm going to break my abstinence. Of course there's going to be a next time for me to relapse. Of course. And my husband would tell me the same thing. Oh, I really like this food. I, I want to take you to this restaurant next time you break your abstinence. And that really, that really struck a chord with me because, you know, nobody had any hope in me. Nobody had any hope that I could ever be abstinent because I never was. I could never be abstinent and content. I was so restless, irritable, and discontented when I was abstinent that I've always been back to the food. And now I never hear that anymore from my daughters. I never hear that from my husband. And I am so happy. I am so happy to be in this program. Thank you for letting me share. Thank, thank you, Rick Essett. And Sally A., you're next. Good morning, Julie. It's wonderful to hear you on the line this morning. And good morning, a vision for you. It's Sally A. in South Jersey, a recovered compulsive overeater. This is a wonderful paragraph that we're reading again this morning. Another reminder, um, this, this paragraph uh, includes the allergy of the body with these first sentences, liquor ceased to be a luxury. He's speaking to the allergy of my body. And then he ends with the mental aspect of the disease. I still fought because I I have a sick thinking problem. I still thought I could control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. And when I read these sentences, I am reminded that this is not another dieting program, dieting with group support of OA. And thank God. When he says these words, I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety. What I hear him saying is he had a few more diets, a few more, maybe even successful diets. For myself, my successful, my most successful diets were when I could get on a good, strong fast and I could lose 20 or 30 pounds so that I could go on another bender and binge and gain it back. But at least I could come out somewhat even. And that's what I think he's saying here to us. I still thought I could control the situation, another good, strong diet. And there were periods of sobriety, periods of dieting, which renewed the people around me, their hope. Gee whiz, maybe Sally can, maybe this will work. And, and maybe I myself would think maybe this diet will work. But you see here again, this paragraph is again reminding us of the allergy of our body and the sick thinking that I lived in for so many years and even with dieting with group support. But thank God, this is not where I live anymore. No more. And you don't have to live here anymore either. Yes, I am not cured, but I live in a place of neutrality. I live in a place where I'm not on a diet anymore. Just for today, I have a plan of eating just for today. I am so grateful that I have this book in my hands. I'm so grateful that I can come on this line and be reminded, Sally, you don't have to do that anymore. 
thank you, God, that now I have a plan of eating. I, have, I wrote my plan down. I'm going to work my plan today. And no matter what may come my way, that I know that I don't have the choice of picking up willy-nilly foods that are going to shoot me in the foot and cause me all day to be struggling to regain some semblance of control because it ain't going to happen, and I know it. And at the same time, my sick thinking has been arrested because of these 12 steps, this program of recovery, the solution found in these 12 steps that have provided me with a way of living, principles of living that I can practice. Thank you so much for allowing me to share. Thanks. Thanks for being here this morning. With that, I pass. Thank you, Sally A. And Carol G. Morning, Julie. Morning, Vision for you. Carol G. Recovered one day at a time. Bill's story. There's so much in there, isn't there? Um, All I see in Bill's story today is the power struggle. Um, I thought I could control the situation. What situation? My life situation. (laughs) I was listening to the traditions read this morning. I heard Tradition 3 say to me, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. And for me, personal transformation needed more than a desire. I've been desiring to stop eating compulsively since I was five years old. And back then I was in a happy, joyous, free body. And my real control over food and battle with food uh, began when I was 12 and I arrived at OA Gates when I was about 35 and I still had 100% desire to stop but not one ounce of power left in me. And Bill's timeline that we're reading about here has really helped me to draw my own timeline of my mental and physical decline over the years. And I actually used to get quite high on being able to exert control over my food and weight. But then the flip side was the intense binges that just created more and more medical complaints for my body. And I see now how my body has been a real casualty in this. I saw how that at each interval of sobriety, I saw how much it was quaking and quivering and shaking violently in fear of the next debauch. And I would constantly say, but I desire to stop. I desire to stop. Why can't I put that, you know, why can I not get some power around that desire to stop? And my last plea to my higher power was for my body. I asked my body, I said, you're the casualty. You're paying the price. You're the one that's carried me for four decades through all this food. What can I do for you? And the short answer was, stop trying to kill me with food. And I said, but my only hope is that I can't make good on this promise. What am I going to do? I've said, yes, I'll do that millions of times. But this time, through looking at Bill's story and looking at my life and looking about what needs to happen to me in the following sections of this chapter even, I found I could find a higher power that could do this battle for me. And today, thanks to my recovery, and I'm earning trust in my body. My body is actually knowing now that I'm making good on my promise. My body is actually grateful to me now for the first time in its life. And on behalf of my body, my poor broken body, my quaking, shivering body, I would like to thank everybody in Overeaters Anonymous for carrying this message to me because I could never have done that on my own. Thank you so much. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Carol G. And I hope I got this right, but Austin R, or it could be Justine R. 
Good morning, mm-hmm. Julie. This is Austin R. You got it absolutely oh. right. Great. Hi. Go Good morning. Hi. I'm a I'm a, a grateful compulsive eater. Grateful to you for your service. Grateful for those of you on the line. Um, what a beautiful meeting. What a beautiful reading, and the shares. You know, initially listening to the reading, I thought, well, you know, I'm sure all of it applies to me, but I couldn't really connect and. What came up for me is the reflection on how I used to live my life, that I don't live it that way today. Um, But as my life was so terribly out of balance, uh, trying to do too much with too few internal resources and coping, I would find my way to a, um, well, maybe a drive-thru or I'd even walk in and always get two of the special item. you know, one for for feeding the compulsion and maybe the second one to actually taste it. And that would progress, you know, that would progress then it was three and it was three of another one. And, and, and just the vision of if I didn't get the three of what I was looking for at that particular establishment, I would get on the highway, then get off the highway um, to make another trip at another another watering hole, I guess we would say. And I'm grateful today that I don't have to um, explore those choices today, but I do have a very healthy respect for my disease. I do believe it's cunning, baffling, patient, and powerful. And I'm just blessed that one day at a time to have it in in, uh, a reprieve. I was recently reminded that this is a WE program, and certainly I was trying to um, out-muscle my disease, not even fully realizing, not not having any awareness that I that I had a disease, although I didn't think I was eating healthfully, that's for sure. Um, but I was reminded this weekend that it's uh, we are we admitted we were powerless, and so it is a we program, and I'm so very grateful to that. So very grateful for all of you on the line who share your experience, strength, and hope with me. I hope you have a beautiful afternoon day today, and thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Austine R and Melissa C. You're next. Hi. Good morning. It's Melissa Say, a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And, um, uh, you know, I love how um, I can feel my own transformation, you know, <laughs> every morning. Because my um, I used to read this and immediately um, look for how I was not like Bill, you know, with almost um, a disgust, like, you know, he was something um, quite different from me. And, you know, I just love um, the slow and deliberate um, way we go over this so that I really can completely identify in, you know, how it goes from a luxury to a necessity. Um, You know, and while his is the the bathtub gin, you know, mine is is just stuffing my face um, with anything, you know, and so the luxury was um, at one time maybe nice dinners out um, or fancy beautiful desserts to the necessity where I'm just um, sitting in my car, you know, shoving food in my mouth um, because I could not stop. And, you know, I remember feeling completely unable to stop. The pull of the food was too strong and uh, my stomach hurt all the time. I had constant heartburn. I, you know, I remember thinking that I had a tumor. I laid in bed the night convinced that um, I had a tumor, and, you know, and I didn't. I was bloated. It was food, it, it, you know, and yet that wasn't enough for me to stop. I got up in the middle of the night and continued to eat. Um, 
you know, so I certainly went from luxury to necessity. And um, my days of controlled eating became fewer and fewer. I couldn't muster up um, the ability to, to even stop. I couldn't get myself on a diet. I It had to be a Monday. The only day I could ever start was Monday. Um, and then it had to be special Mondays. It couldn't be anywhere in between any major holidays. You know, and I'm thinking right now how um, we're in Veterans Day and that years ago this would have been the height of my eating craze because I was after Halloween before the New Year. And, and so it was um, a luxury, I thought. Everybody's overeating now. But for me, it really was a necessity. And, um, you know, and then I would think how my family and the people I love me around me would breathe a sigh of relief perhaps around New Year's when it looked like I was finally getting myself together. Um, you know, and that certainly was shorter and shorter. And then, you know, really fast forward to when I finally came in this time, um, I couldn't start on New Year's either. You know, I was without any ability to put it down. It was a complete necessity for me. And, um, you know, and so now I love that we're right here in that, how we're seeing it go from luxury to necessity. And I know that coming around the bend is going to be the transformation because, that's what I needed to happen. I needed the, not only the luxury, the notion of luxury being removed, I needed the necessity to be removed too. I needed to completely rely on something much bigger than the food. And, um, you know, and that's where I, that's where I am. Thank you, God. And, um, and where I know that this is going. So thank you with that. I'll pass. Thank you, Melissa C. And next is Leah M. Thank you. So much, Julie. Yeah, as, as we read the story, I mean, certainly is painful to read, but uh, it was even more painful to live. So uh, I identify in with this progression. I mean, it starts off, liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Absolutely, you know, Bill's not drinking for fun anymore. Uh, the consequences are getting worse. Uh, the noose is getting tighter around his neck. He's certainly drinking and using greater amounts due to his uh, body's increased tolerance and capacity for alcohol. Um, you know, the disease is calling the shots here, and the frequency and the duration of his binges and the intensity is, you know, up many notches. I mean, and it's going to keep going. It's going to keep cranking up. And I relate to this progression. I absolutely relate to this progression. And I relate to the double standard in the fact that the drinking is killing him and he knows that. It feels like he's going to die. And yet to not drink feels like he's going to die. And I I relate to that. You know, these binges that I was having were becoming more violent. Uh, the frequency, the duration, and its intensity were increasing uh, to all around the clock kind of thing. I knew I was dying from it and all the remedies that I was trying. And at the same time, uh, when I had the periods of sobriety, periods of abstinence, I also felt like I was going to die. So these consequences that Bill is experiencing here, you know, the loss of his job and the loss of his home and the medical consequences and the mental torture and the emotional turmoil that's going on, these happen to some degree to all addicts, uh, but they're not the issue. They might serve as a wake-up call. You know, he's waking up that there's a problem, 
these consequences are the drama. They're not the cause. They're the symptoms. They're not the disease. And everybody focuses on these consequences of the illness of alcoholism or compulsive overeating. But the real issue is that even after all this suffering, even after all this pain, even after all the tears, we have a mind that still takes us back to that which is killing us. So it says here, nevertheless, I thought I could still control the situation. There are periods of sobriety. Exactly. <laughs> we cannot solve a spiritual problem with a physical solution. When he drinks alcohol, he loses control. When he doesn't drink alcohol, he loses control. You know, so abstinence was not my answer. Treating compulsive overeating with a diet was like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. The treatment was not adequate for the condition. I just kept having temporary respites after temporary respites. Meanwhile, the disease was continuing to progress. Thank God the big book gave me an education about the true nature of my illness. The greater access aspect of my disease resides in my mind. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Maya. And our last share on this paragraph will be Sarah W. Good morning, Julie. Thank you for your service today. Good morning, Sarah W., grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, by God's grace. Um, I, w- I like the first sentence, and I was thinking about the word necessity. You know, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And food is a necessity for us to live, but I know I've also used that excuse in my uh, history to say, well, I have to eat. And... Um, you know, like the idea of not being able to to see the truth from the false. Um, you know, my my disease is about I want what I want when I want it. And um, one's too many and a thousand's not enough. That's the way it, it always has been with me. You know, I was a real huge binge eater, especially at night. And... Um, you know, just huge quantities of lots of variety. Um, and I remember the effects that it had on my body, uh, you know, severe GERD, you know, esophageal reflux, severe uh, COPD because of my um, my breathing difficulties because I was almost 300 pounds and my lungs didn't have the capacity to breathe and I couldn't, um, I just couldn't get enough air. Uh, you know, my legs rubbing together and just not being able to function in life. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the periods of sobriety kind of fed into the idea that I could control it. You know, somehow I can do it this time. And I remember waking up at night, uh, in the middle of the night and towards the morning, where I was soaking wet. And the reason I was, as a nurse, was because I was having hypoglycemia, because my blood sugar got so low because I would infuse myself with vast quantities of carbohydrates and sugar and my I would increase my blood sugar drastically and then I would bottom out. And so, you know, although we're not alcoholics, we have effects very similar to this and it affects our bodies. You know, diabetes, thank God I don't have it, but, you know, continued use can create those things, heart disease, you know, stroke, I was just thinking to myself that today what I can say is I'm so grateful that my disease, first of all, brought me to a program that has helped me learn how to live life on life's terms because my solution always was food. Food is my solution to how I can't deal with life the way life is. 
And today what I can say is that I have a, a design for living that teaches me how to continue to accept life on life's terms, not only accept it, but be grateful for it. If you knew me 20 years ago, you would not think I'm the same human being because that's not the way I looked at it. Life was drudgery. I hated getting up in the morning. I hated looking at myself. I never felt I was enough. Either I was better than you or less than you. And today I can just say I'm one of you. I'm so grateful to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous. It truly has saved my life, and I'm so grateful to the steps and to most importantly, my higher power. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And we actually are going to stay on this paragraph, so who else would like to share? This is Larry. Hi, Larry. Anyone else? Judy? Judy F.? Judy F.? Yeah, thank you. Great. Anyone? And one more. Kathleen. Kathleen. Sue L.? Kathleen, Kathleen. what's your... Kathleen, what's your last initiative? C. C. Okay, and we'll see if we have enough and then do L. Okay, Larry K., go ahead. Okay, thanks so much for your service, Larry K., recovered compulsive overeater. Um, so, you know, we've heard, we've heard this story. that This disease never remains stagnant. It doesn't lie dormant. There's always a downward progression of our untreated malady. You know, temporary sobriety is not is is an untreated malady, untreated problem, and so you know, you know, it always seemed that calamity was was either currently in my life, like Bill, or it was certainly on its way, you know. And and I think back almost 20 years ago uh, to the day my wife and I brought my my newborn daughter um, home from the hospital on Thanksgiving Day, 1995, and you can imagine. The, uh, you know, the, the Thanksgiving feast was all ready and the excitement and the joy. And a- after all, I mean, she was the first grandchild on my, on my wife's side of the family. And, you know, not even the biggest cynic, you know, could deny the, uh, the irony of bringing home a new baby on Thanksgiving Day, right? Well, you know, if I fast forward a few days later, all the family left back to their lives. My wife was still in, in pain from some of the complications of the pregnancy. There was uncertainty at my job. Our finances were dicey. Um, I, I think my daughter required a bit of attention every so often at that point, you know, and my marriage began to, 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 uh, to feel empty. And, and guess what? I was still an untreated compulsive overeater. And if there was ever a time for me to get some control over my binge eating and my my Jekyll and Hyde personality, you know, maybe that would be the time, you know, and yet massive amounts of food kept magically flying off the plate. It was unreal. And and it was weird. If you would have said it flew through the drive through window and it direct directly down my throat. And had, and had I known any better, I swear you guys, it, 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 it almost seemed like I had an obsession beyond my mental control. You see, control is but an illusion, and trying harder is not the answer. Surrender was the answer. Not, not apathy, not apathy, but surrender. It's a big difference, and that was the difference, and, and we'll see with Bill the same deal. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry Kay and Judy F. Good morning, Julie. Good to hear you. Good morning, visionaries. This is Judy F., recovered compulsive overeater from Massachusetts. The 
it's a treat to be here today. Um, I'm looking at the sentence, I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. And for me, that I stood on that saying that I really am a normal leader. I just have times when, because of emotional stuff, I just need need something to get me through it. But I, I believed, and this was my, the lie I told myself, that I really was normal, but it was just, if I just understood why emotionally I went to food, then I would substitute that and not do that. And I was in therapy for years to do, um, figure that out. And I think of um, the beginning of Chapter 3 of more about alcoholism when it says um, the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And that that just um, reminds me with this sentence because I just tried to keep proving that I was a normal eater. And it brought me actually to um, insanity, being in um, two, being hospitalized twice and um, having a suicidal attempt. So this being, you know, and also I think of what a real alcoholic, a real compulsive overeater, it passes over to being required and, um, and necessity. It's just not, oh, I overeat, but, you know, I can get back. It just became less and less times of sobriety and more times of being in in the food, in the binging. So for me, that illusion is so powerful. Um, delusional thinking, denial of how unmanageable my life was and that how it did become a necessity. I, I couldn't live without it. Um, and living with it, I was living a death, a spiritual um, and physical death death was on its way, and I'm just so grateful that OE and these 12 steps, by doing the work, gave me that solution of a higher power that has brought me to serenity, to peace with others, and neutrality with the food, and that I can be a useful human being and not be in that obsession and in that mental and that physical craving. I can have freedom today, and I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you, Judy F. And we have time just for one more quick share, and that would be Kathleen C. Star one to unmute. Okay. I'm, sorry. How about, I'm right here. I'm right here. Okay, go ahead. I was upside down and off. <laughs> I'm Kathleen, compulsive overeater, food addict, and exercise bulimic. My compulsion began when I was in in grade school, and I just had an aversion for food. I just couldn't get enough. I remember in the middle of the night, I would come downstairs and binge eat and stuff my face with whatever sugary carb I could find, and in the house until one day I was caught. It was like I was caught with a big secret. So off to I mean the sort of clinic that I go with now patient program. I stopped temporarily and temporarily I also went to uh 
a diet works back then, which was like the Weight Watchers. And uh, I lost the weight, but nobody complimented me. No one said, you did a good job, never got a pat on the back and stuff. It really made me upset because I tried so hard. And then after the diet works ended, the weight just went back on because nobody was monitoring me. And I couldn't monitor myself. So I didn't know, you know, that's why I was weighing and measuring back then, too. And um, long story short, after 30 years, I've been in compulsion. I tried it a couple of times, or like two other times, and then the third time I tried it, I became immediately abstinent, but I was smoking at the time. And the control issue, it is a big control issue for me. It's like I'm fighting the devil. You know, give me back my my purse. Give me back my money, you know. And food was like money to me. You know, I needed it. I needed it. If I didn't have my money... I would freak out. I would start yelling and screaming, getting angry and frustrated and bitter and resentful. That's how I feel now. I'm in the clutches of this illness right now. And I feel as if, you know, I'm just praying my heart out that Jesus, please help me stay away from the food. I want to compulsively overeat all the time. I'm very stressed out about a lot of things in my life, and the food wants me, and the food wants to deceive me and say, I won't make it better. I'm like, no, it won't make it better. My head is having these arguments with with, with the, the, the illness, and you know, God is supreme, and he knows what's going on. He's trying to, you know, I'm reaching out to him, and I don't think I'm falling on deaf ears because whenever I want to compulsively overeat, you know, Lord, please remove this compulsion, and he does. But last night, I remember I was making phone call after phone call and getting people and talking to people and praying with people. It helped. It wasn't perfect. I went to bed starving, wanting to eat more. But time. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for your share. You're welcome. You're welcome. Sorry for going over. Oh, no problem. Okay. Thank you to everyone who has shared. Please join us for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following the closing. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And will Lynn, please, Lynn S., please read a vision for you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Hi, this is Lynn S. from Toronto, Canada. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.